Hi there, I'm Michelle Doney. I'm a veterinarian from Margaret River. I've been a vet for 16 years and I am on John Littlefair's podcast, Never Just a Dog. So you've just been on holidays, the oh, snow. Oh, yeah, the snow, marvellous, amazing, white, cold, crisp, clear, mind-blowing stuff, really cool. Spot the first time someone's yeah. seen snow. Yeah, is that, is it, so that's your first time, yeah? First time in 49 years. Definitely a bucket list item ticked off. Fantastic. Got to ask you, why did you choose to become a veterinarian? The sanitised version is because, and, and really, I love science. I, was, I gravitated towards science in high school and absolutely love animals, love animals. Oh, I used to bring home the not-so-stray dogs to our flat in Brisbane when I was a kid and, look, I just found, look what I found. Can we keep him, please? Can we keep him? My parents would find the owners, of course, within a few days. There'd be tears, there'd be tantrums. Oh, my gosh, that was the dog of my life. But no, so dogs came and went and animals came and went into my life a lot as a kid. So we moved around a lot, but I still managed to somehow have the odd pet or adopt the odd pet temporarily and just loved it. I remember my grandma had this little papillon and it was a vicious little beast and I loved it. I just wanted to cuddle it. We'd go around to my grandparents and it would just snarl and yap and snap at me. and Oh, it was heartbreaking as a kid. And it would grab onto my dad's uh, velour slacks, you know, the flares back in the day, the 70s, and it would just attack his slacks and it'd be hanging off and my dad's <laughs> shaking his leg to get his dog off. <laughs> but I just loved it. Oh, just wanted all the dogs, all the dogs. Now I do have all the dogs pretty much every day. Pretty good. So you've got your own dog as well? I do, yes. As vets, we tend to have rejects and we tend to have big dogs. You'll notice vets tend to have big dogs. Well, particularly maybe rural vets will still have big dogs. Maybe that's for their farm reasons, but also bigger dogs produce more blood volume because we often need them as blood donors for emergency transfusions. And my boy has saved Four other dogs so far in his five-year-old lifetime with blood transfusions. Pretty amazing. And my old girl, Abby, who's no longer with us, she was my family heart dog, really, and she saved about six lives over her time. Amazing. It was from your childhood that you gravitated towards, well, firstly, mm -hmm. science and then to veterinary studies. Yeah. So loved animals, loved science, wanted I applied for vet from high school, knew I wasn't going to get the marks to get in. It's so competitive and I just wasn't quite up there with my studies and my um, convictions, I suppose, with my self-convictions. And I didn't get into vet school, but I did get into medical science. So I did medical science at Curtin and worked in a laboratory for several years and enjoyed it. But in the end, I got a bit of an itch towards the end of that career, bit of an itch that I wasn't quite fulfilling, not my purpose, but maybe it was my purpose, yeah. I remember my boss saying to me, this is how we fix this giant machine that does all the blood tests, Michelle, because you like working with machines and computers, don't you? And I'm smiling and nodding, but inside I'm thinking, no, no, you don't. You like working <laughs> with people and animals. What are you doing here? 
So that got me thinking seriously about changing careers. And I'm so glad I did. So glad I did. It ticks all of my boxes. Still love it after 16 years. Where did you do your studies? Was it in Brisbane? Was it in Queensland? No, so I studied medical science here at Curtin and then I went back to Murdoch University to study vet science. So it's a five-year degree course, or it's a double degree. Um, loved every moment of it, every species, fascinating. It's amazing. It was just, it's such a practical course. It's a challenging course, but when you're enjoying the work you're doing, the challenge becomes less challenging, fun challenge. Uh, it was hard yakka. I had two babies during that course as well, so I had a bit of time off with each one. Um, so I really hit the ground running once I graduated. Yeah, I'm a bit of an overworker, I guess, a workaholic, which is good for, well, it's kind of good and bad for vet because there's plenty of opportunities to work really hard and over push yourself and you, you do have to be careful with that and you do have to learn to have some boundaries with vet as it can disappear, especially in a small country town where people get to know you and decide to start pushing those personal boundaries, personal work-related boundaries. Once you qualified as a veterinarian, did you go to the country first or did you stay in Perth? No, no so I day one of uh, graduation, I worked for Balcata Vets up here uh, for a few months and that was hitting the ground running So that's a 24-hour facility and I was working mostly the night shifts, the evening shifts. I was so, so busy, um, quite overwhelming as a new grad, but was fantastic working in a big clinic with about 10 other vets because Mostly you'd have the plan ready in your head and your treatment plan, your diagnostic plan or what you thought that condition was. You really just needed to run run it by. And that's I guess that's where the benefit of things like internship and residencies come in. So vet school is very different. They will graduate you after five years of training and you can simply just be a GP and hit the ground running. And the majority of vets do. And it's it's really tough because you have very little guidance and backing we're trying to get better with that and we do have mentorships now so that is becoming better because a lot of vets are burning out dropping out within the first three to five years they're really disillusioned with their job and we can't have that there's such a lot of training and such brilliant minds being so finely trained and to lose them within the first few years it's really sad but then if they come to the realization that this job is just not for them, then that's okay as well. And we've got to realise that after all that training, after a lifelong dream of becoming a vet, if you're just feeling disillusioned with it, I think it's it's fair enough to say, look, yes, this is just not for me. Because the stresses in this job can be incredibly intense and immense and on a daily basis and several times a day. So it's really easy to get caught up missing out on the joyous moments and forgetting about those because the sadness and the grief and the intenseness of it and the stress takes over. What was for you in that early stage of your career, the times or the moments or the, the positions that you found most stress? And was there any way in those early stages of your career that helped you to cope? Mm. I remember one of the most confronting days I had was I think one of the, the local shire had pulled up the back of the van and they had about three or four dogs in the back that needed euthanizing. They were, they'd been at the shire too long in, at the pound. 
Um, so yeah, there. So it's our job. It was our job, and they gave that job to me because I was a new graduate. It, I might have even been on my externship there, doing my prac work there, um, because it's it's a procedure that we can do without. There's no clients there. There's no stress there. There's you know, it's pretty much foolproof um, issues procedure. So we yeah. So I pretty much had to put to sleep three. It was three or four dogs in a row. The others are looking on. Not that they know. Not that they know. But it's that was, it was intense. Was it stressful? No. Stressful is when, in, as a vet, stressful is when you know the outcome of this animal is riding on your shoulders, and it sometimes it comes down to how well you can counsel and talk to the owners and gain their trust to be able to do what you need to do to help that pet. That's stress. I think that's quite intense stress. How many years, is it six years to become a veterinarian in Australia? It's five at Murdoch. It was six for a while, so it'll be between five and six years. So it's three years, uh, non-clinical, intensely theoretical. Two years of the Bachelor of Veterinary Medicine and Surgery. So those past, uh, the last two years are intensely clinical, whereas the first three years are fairly uh, non-clinical, intensely theoretical. How long into your veterinarian career did you decide to move to the country? So being an overachiever and a bit of, bit overconfident, I actually, so I was working at Balcata Vets and my husband and I decided to head overseas. We'd never been overseas as young people. So um, I got a job with an American company and they sponsored us. So they got us visas. We were too old for working visas um, back then. And we went over to the States for a year. And I worked in Southern California for um, a big chain of vets called Banfield. They're a huge chain now. Uh, so that was a huge experience. And I worked in Southern California for a year. While we were there, the Margaret River Veterinary Hospital came up for sale. And we decided that's not going to happen anytime soon. And we always loved Margaret River, loved the food and the wine. We'd go down there for holidays. We used to jokingly say to each other, yeah, one day we're going to own the hospital. We'd never been to the vets or anything there, but we we're going to we we're going to do that and move down there. So it came up for sale. And there's just sometimes opportunities in your life that you just shouldn't let go. And we worked our hardest, tried our hardest, begged, borrowed, sold everything we had and bought the practice. We managed to get it. There was uh, a lot of help along the way because it's really, really, really expensive to buy and run a veterinary hospital. It's very, very different to every other business model, really. Hugely expensive. Um, Not a lot of profits, not a lot of great money in wages either. What, you know, the bill that we see, most of that gets chewed up, you know, behind the scenes. There's not a lot of profit or wages. Were you still in the States when you purchased uh, the Margaret River Vet Hospital? Yeah, so it was sight unseen. We'd never visited. Um, we had um, my husband's mother went and took some photos for us. <laughs> At least we could see it because the, the fella selling it hadn't given us any photographs. Uh, looked pretty, looked good. And um, yeah, we went for it from, from the States. There was a lot of organising. A lot of coordinating and a lot of people helped us along the way. Do you know how that we found out that that was for sale? We'd actually jokingly told friends years before, yeah, one day we're going to buy the Margaret River Vets. And two friends called us up and said, guess what's for sale in Australia? So we wouldn't have known had friends and family not let us know. 
So sometimes just putting your dreams out there, putting your ideas out there, you know, that manifestation thing really happens. Your brain just works on it. It just quietly whirs away what you want, you will see opportunities for in your everyday life. So that was pretty amazing. Good friends too. Were they there to celebrate when you eventually bought the practice? Yep, for sure. Fantastic. Everyone was very proud of us. And then it was the hard slog. Wow. Yep. Running the business ourselves with no business experience, but a lot of enthusiasm. And we already knew we had really strong work ethics. And um, my then husband, Wayne, was super fantastic with the books and, you know, running the behind the scenes. And I was pretty much the engine on the ship, really. I was, well, I was steering the ship. He was the engine. Yeah. It was a good combination. And we just worked really, really hard for a long time. How many hours a week on average would you put in working as the owner of a vet yeah. clinic? I think for the first 10 years, I was putting in 70 hours a week, easily, easily. That was really hard. I look back, we probably have a total of 10 days off a year of holiday and in a row. So there was very little opportunity for an actual break. Mostly, I, I recall having periods where I'd work 20 odd days straight. I would be on call for the majority of that because we're in a rural country town, there's no one else to go to after hours and then I'd have a couple of days off and start all over again. That became very intense stresses and distress. And when you throw in that, the sometimes ethical distress of our job can really build things up. When you say ethical distresses, do you want to broaden that a little yeah, bit? Ethical distress or moral stresses. So that's where you know the outcome or you know the right course of action for that pet and for some reason you're unable to perform it. So there's usually an element of suffering or welfare or neglect issues, and often neglect issues are not conscious. Clients are unaware that they're being neglectful towards their pets, and that's a really hard one to communicate, and that's where your counselling skills as a vet becomes really important, is you need to be able to be the advocate for the pet who has no voice. So... So that's where moral distress comes in, is where you know that this animal is suffering, but the owner will not agree with, you'll give them a, always a range of options. You need to give a range of options and then they won't agree to any of those and they walk out with a suffering animal. That is the hardest part of my job. How did you cope in those early years of running the practice and being on call 24-7? Mainly, how did you keep your mind healthy? I think I was so determined to have a successful outcome business-wise and I worked in a small country town and I was very passionate about, I guess, having a good reputation. I'm naturally a people pleaser, so I always wanted a good outcome no matter what. So I really strived hard to probably focused on, well, how do we get a good outcome for everybody? And I guess that gave me satisfaction. Um, I think learning to talk to clients in a in a non-judgmental way where you can get the right outcome for the pet most of the time and that gives you a lot of job satisfaction when you get that love back from a client or appreciation anyway it really does make your day and learning to run with the good stuff try and focus on the good stuff but I do a lot of reading about 
um, veterinary issues and learning to cope. So learning resilience, a lot of offloading, being able to talk to someone about it. Talking to someone about it, would that be like your husband, your partner or a colleague or would that be, let's say, a counsellor or a therapist that specialises in workplace stresses and workplace in a say conflict in the effect that it has on a particular individual and in this case yourself being a veterinarian for me at the time I wasn't social media wasn't big and I wasn't into it anyway I spoke mostly with my husband because he was also in the industry even though he wasn't a direct industry trainee he understood a great deal of what I was going through and I could then just offload and talk about it. In country vet, we tend to be a little bit insulated and isolated and that's a really huge stressor and we don't tend to talk and catch up with each other enough and I really think that would be a good change to have in rural vet. And the clinics can be quite small, so you don't have a colleague. But in general, colleagues are the first port of call. They, nobody else understands what you're going through except a fellow, a fellow colleague, um, really understanding and listening. In the neighbouring towns, I would occasionally chat to one of the experienced vets if I had a case not going so well. They're, they were incredibly helpful, incredibly supportive so, but they're all busy with their own lives and their own stresses as well. But on the odd case where you could have a chat, that was very nice. Just to know there is someone out there who you can call for a little chat if you need to. And then when social media, when I sort of got onto Facebook, there was a um, a group called the Australian Veterinarian Network, and it's it's a closed network, and it's just veterinarians, and it became a bit of a lifeline for me because people could post their ups, their downs, their stresses. You could read that you weren't alone with things happening in your day-to-day practice, whether you're a practice owner or a colleague or whatever. And I really do believe that was a bit of a lifeline for me in some in some respects because we truly understood what each other was going through. Um, and I do recall one particular night of distress I was having and I had put out a heartfelt post and made a phone call to one of the veterinarian, uh, I guess, lifelines or therapy lines and, yeah, that helped a lot. Really good. A lot of people reached out to me. It was really lovely to know that we really do care about our fellow colleagues and we lose too many of our fellow colleagues to suicide and burn out and drop out that uh, it is important to reach out to people when you can, whenever they're, it's hard to reach out. So if someone is reaching out for a bit of support, that means things are pretty intense for them. So it's it was really lovely to have that. Absolute strangers from all over the country that I'd never met before and I still haven't met sent really lovely messages and said anytime you need to call, you can do that. Very nice. So there are definitely times where we need a bit of extra help and I think therapy is really important and I think the stigma of therapy is dissolving and that's wonderful particularly in Australia I think America has had the concept of therapy being part of your same as you would have your your gym instructor you know it's just part of your life coaching and I think that's really important and I think it's a great task of our future mental health in Australia is to continue to destigmatize because being able to talk to someone is just a human it's our human condition, isn't it? It's really important. I get a lot of 
the day-to-day stresses of clients heaped on me in the consult room when I want to make decisions for their pet, but then they're telling me all of the other things going on in their life that it's really hard then my decision-making starts to be swayed by that and how I want to recommend certain courses of action. You know, they may say that they're, they would do anything for their pet and this is their this is their remaining thing from their loved one who has passed away or some of the most intense situations. Please do anything to save them. But then they have really, really restricted budget issues. And so learning to work with that, I think teaching yourself how to convey compassion and kindness when it's a fairly straightforward situation, but sometimes you've really got to learn to get that compassion going and word it in a way that clients feel that they never feel judged because then even if you have to put that animal to sleep, they're thanking you for your time and the effort you put in to them and their pet. So that's been, that I think gives you a lot of resilience when you learn those skills as a vet and that's something you do not get taught, of course, at vet school. Michelle, Share with me your approach to end of life with people's pets. Owning my own business gave me the opportunity to do euthanasia the way I wanted it to be done. And and that probably stems a little bit from my childhood. But I felt really passionate about giving, ensuring that animals have a gentle death. And for me, having my own business, I got to call the shots a bit like that. So we had our own designated lounge room, maybe from the vet's perspective. Um, I mean, we'll go from, you know, a gorgeous puppy consult to performing a euthanasia to then going in and giving someone a diagnosis of, say, their pet of cancer. So that is, yeah, I guess that's that's our job, but that's what we do. So learning learning to sort of switch through, and I suppose anyone in healthcare will understand that, that, that issue. Being able to have my own business, I could call the shots, I could do house call euthanasias, always, always. I remember having to take my pet into the vets and being put down. And whilst they were really lovely about it, it was on the consult table where you would then take your new puppy. And the memories from that is heartbreaking. And I vowed and declared I would never have that in my own clinic. There will never be any euthanasias in a consult room, have um, a special area or anywhere that would suit the owners, really. So, and also, but house call euthanasias can be the most incredible experiences, incredibly intimate. Yeah, from that perspective, I think. But as we go in, just wanting to provide the most care for the, that pet's end of life and for the owner of the people around them as well, that if you can provide that one nice thing, it just eases their suffering a little bit. And certainly for the dog, they never know. They don't know what's going on. So that's the sometimes that's the easy part. So generally with house calls, I will talk to them about, like usually the dog is, we'll talk about dogs really primarily. Usually the dog is already, they're pretty old. It's needed to happen and they're not, very mobile anyway. So normally they're on their bed or something like that. Sometimes they're on the client's bed. When you think of the the technical parts of the job that I have to do, there may be body fluids afterwards and that can happen quite quickly. So sometimes you know, I say it can happen wherever they are comfortable or you are comfortable. 
owner's laps. Owners will often want to cuddle their dog and that's absolutely fine by me. So it's important that I can communicate what might happen afterwards that might not be so pleasant. Mostly if you communicate that briefly, but they're okay with it. They might just have a towel or a blanket and that's fine. But the situations, you know, I've gone out because I live in Margaret River. Some of these house calls are on properties and, you know, we'll be looking down over this amazing, beautiful bushland setting on in and do my job and walk away because they'll bury the dog on the property. Absolutely amazing, peaceful. What a lovely job to do where the dog doesn't have to go out of their home environment. In one house call I attended, there were probably about 12 people there. And it was a, a really, they were very welcoming of me. And, it, you know, I just went and performed that euthanasia. And then they asked me to sit down and have a glass of wine with them. And I did. And that's a really, really lovely experience. It's quite beautiful. It must be sad at times. Do you sometimes feel yourself taking on the sadness in moments? 100%, absolutely. And part of me feels that it's time to leave the job when it's not affecting me. And it affects me momentarily. And then I'll get in my car and I'll leave and wipe my tears and breathe. And I will remind myself of how beautiful that was and how how smooth and wonderfully that went and have my little thoughts and then you do you have to shake it off you have to move on um often we always send a card a card to the client and that's sometimes i used to handwrite those myself i don't anymore but i used to handwrite them myself and for me it was also part of the closure and sometimes they would tear me up again remembering especially if they'd been a long term client I mean, I own that practice for 14 years. There are a lot of pets there I've seen from their very first veterinary visit to their very last. That is an absolute amazing contribution that I can give to someone's life. And I'm really, really proud to know that they wanted me to be there for the last moments of their dog's life as well. So they're hard. They're really hard. It's mostly hard because you're seeing hearts break. So you don't feel too much sadness for the loss of the life of the animal, even though I knew the animal over the years, that wasn't my pet. So it's not the same as when I've lost my own pets. But seeing someone else's heartbreak because I'm empathetic, that's it, really hard. I'm sometimes driving to those house calls with a little bit of dread welling up. I know those clients, we've been through the lymphoma talk or whatever it has been, and we know it's time. And I know, I know I'm going to break hearts. I know I'm going to do that actions that I'm going to perform is going to break hearts and I know I don't take it personally I know it's not me I have to do this but I know that's going to happen and that's it's a bit of a heavy weight sometimes I do remember going to a house call in in the township and I pulled up to the driveway and as I pulled into the driveway I stopped and I burst into tears and I'm bawling in my car and I'm going, no, no, this can't be right. This can't be right. I had just put down her other dog probably only eight months ago. She was a very aged lady who was still living at home. And she had had one after the other. She had rescued an old dog. And each time they developed cancer. And I just couldn't believe eight months later, I'm having to go there for the next rescue dog that had developed cancer. I... I just sometimes I don't want to do it. My body says no. And then of course you have to gather your thoughts and go, well, I have to do this. So that is really, really hard. 
But I do feel that if I'm not being affected by these, probably losing my empathy and I probably should move on to another career. So Michelle, you ended up selling the Margaret River practice. When was that? So that was just a year ago, almost to the day we sold it. But uh, I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> couldn't practice ownership was not for me anymore. And I wanted to get out of that before veterinary work was losing its shine and, and the love of that as well. And I knew I still loved being a vet, but the stress of being a practice owner was far too much for me. I take on too much work. I was doing too much after hours. Um, any complaints that come in, being empathetic, you, you try not to, but, you know, you take it a little bit personally. Uh, so the stress of that, after so many years, I was working far too hard. And the new owner, he is much better at getting other people to work more collegial. And and I think I was a, a good leader in that I led by example and I had a really strong work ethic, but there were parts of my leadership that just wasn't meant to be. I wasn't really meant to be a leader. I'm a much better colleague. So I think I recognise that over the over years. Just had to go. It had to go. I'm very proud to say I'm still working there though. So I'm still in my community, my vet community and colleagues and I can be a colleague now. So now I waltz into work with a smile on my face, do my job, absolutely love my job and my clients and walk out of there at the end of my shift. Amazing. You must be a pretty good veterinarian because they've kept you on as an employee. Uh, I'm a good people pleaser (laughs) 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 and I like good outcomes. Um, No, I Look, I'm just a regular GP vet and I recognise that and I'm okay with that. I think it's really hard. Your ego really can get carried away with you or you feel that you need to be a something or a specialist or, but I'm very comfortable being a good family pet vet and I really enjoy that. So you don't see yourself retiring from the profession and going down another path in in your working life? No, not at this stage. And there's so many opportunities to work part-time or downgrade your work or there's volunteering, volunteering on tropical islands, you know, or doing locum work, which can have its own set of pluses and minuses. So at this stage, though, very happy to just continue on my new role, which is same vet, less general stress and responsibility. Do you get to write the cards out? No, the other girls do. But I tell you, the the nurses write beautiful cards. They always do a paw print. And the paw print is from your own animal, of course. And they do a really beautiful job. And they take pride in that. And uh, sometimes we'll all sign the card. But, yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing to continue to do and to offer. Um, It's important. I think it helps the whole team to cope with those little losses that we all experience and get give our mojo back and feel good about that situation that was a sad situation. And uh, I think clients really, really appreciate that. I recall getting a card about a month after my dog, my first, my first family dog, I suppose, had passed away and the emotions come rushing back, the tears come rushing back, but I've still got that card. And that was, you know, that was probably the early 90s. So... I think they're really important parts of our life. And I will also say that 
I get a lot of thank you cards and they're incredible. I love those, really love them. And I've kept every single one of them and I will never throw one out. And I think um, when I am older and retired, then I will be looking back through all of those and they'll bring me smiles and tears. Oh, the cards you receive can be incredibly heartfelt. So some have personal artwork, some have artwork by their children and the, the child is thanking me and there's a picture of their dog and me and we're there at the vets and there's a needle or something like that. Not always euthanasia either. Sometimes it's thank you for saving my pet. Um, a lot of those emergency situations. So a photo, oh, the photos are incredible. And the photo might be on as part of the card or a separate uh, and in just the little notes, they're absolutely amazing and they definitely, definitely are an important part of my mojo and love of the job is getting that feedback as well. Very important question for you. You live in Margaret River. I know that you like wine because you've told me. Have you ever taken up surfing? Right. Good question. I learned to surf for the first time this year as well. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I was helped onto the board. Uh, this was up in Exmouth um, in April, uh, June, just so not very long ago. I, I got up on my knees three times with these lovely little baby waves. And then I thought, well, you get up on your knees, just bloody stand up. So I did the fourth time. I stood up and I stayed standing. I wave. And I swore and I screamed and everyone else in the water looked at me and I'm sure they were thinking, she just caught her first wave. <laughs> <laughs> and then I duck dive in the water. It was it was also an amazing feeling. And you're going to keep that up? You're going to keep yep. that? Now that you've got a little bit more time on your hands, not yep. a lot of time, yep. but a bit more, not owning the yep. clinic? Yep. I've just never had time because any time I've had off, if it's a weekend, it I've usually been on call as well. So I would usually, with practice ownership, I was usually on call somewhere between four and six nights a week. And we say out of out of weekdays, weeknights, we would get calls two to three times a week after hours and on weekends somewhere between two and six call outs over a weekend. That's a lot of work and a lot of you've just got to be close by to the clinic. You can't go out in a bushwalk. You can't go out of town and you can't go surfing for two hours or something like that. You're going to miss a call. So this is part of my letting go and doing what I want to do and things that I can do that take a little bit more time. Amazing. Highly recommend it. What type of surfboard do you have? I don't have a surfboard. That was my, my, my boyfriend's surfboard. It was a foamy and it's a long one. So oh, almost like a Malibu, yeah, like almost. a long Malibu, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in and get someone to give me some advice on getting myself aboard. I'll just get a foamy or something. I reckon. Michelle, thanks for coming in. This has been incredibly insightful. My pleasure.